Hello, and welcome to Inside Briefing Extra, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Gemma Tetlow, Chief Economist at the IFG, stepping briefly back into the presenter's chair to bring you this bonus episode to discuss Rishi Sunak's third budget and the first multi-year spending review since 2015. This special edition of the podcast is supported by SAP. After two budgets delivered in the teeth of the pandemic, this was the first time that Rishi Sunak was really able to look beyond to what he termed a new age of optimism. He was aided in this optimism by a substantial improvement in the economic and fiscal forecast, which delivered him a sizable windfall in lower borrowing. To chew over the fiscal events this week, I'm joined by three of my IFG colleagues and one special guest. First up from the IFG, we have Tom Pope, IFG's Deputy Chief Economist. Hi, Tom. Hi, Gemma. And also with us is Jill Rutter, IFG Senior Fellow and one-time Treasury Press Secretary. Hi, Jill. Hi, Gemma. And Graham Atkins, an Associate Director at the IFG who leads on our work on the performance of public services. Hi, Graham. Hello, Gemma. And our special guest today is Chris Francis, Government Affairs Director for SAP. Good to have you with us, Chris. Uh, Good to be here. Thank you for the invite. Chris, how closely do you follow all the drama on Budget Day? Were you poring over the documents all afternoon as we were? Um, I, I, I do pretty much wait until the documents are out because that's my, my preferred method of working. But yes, it is it is um, um, a, a high tension day for everyone in the um, stakeholder world, shall we say. Excellent. Well, look forward to hearing more from you on uh, what, what you make of it all shortly. Um Tom, let's start with the budget, the big picture of this budget. Um, We and others had predicted before Wednesday that the Office for Budget Responsibility, the official forecaster, was going to revise up its forecasts for economic growth and improve the forecast for borrowing and give the Chancellor some extra money to play with. But in the end, the fiscal windfall was much larger than anyone seemed to have expected. Can you talk us through why was that? Yes, so the, the economic news on the face of it did get better yesterday. The OBR downgraded its estimate of the long-term impact of COVID on the economy. It used to think that the economy would be 3% smaller than it otherwise would have been. It's revised that down to 2%. So that's a 1% booth in the real size of the economy. And that on its own would have been enough for a significant fiscal upgrade, but not one as large as the over $30 billion a year or so that the Chancellor was handed in the mid-2020s. And the reason for that is a slightly techie point. So the OBR expects the size of the real economy to be about 1% bigger than it thought back in March. But it expects the cash size of the economy um, to be even to grow even more because inflation will also be higher. And that cash increase in economic activity will also increase tax revenues. And actually, this increase in GDP is what the OBR describes as especially tax rich. So in nominal terms, not, not accounting for inflation, wages are going up quickly and wages tend to be quite heavily taxed. And on top of that, there are several thresh- thresholds in the income tax system in particular that are not going to increase in line with that inflation. So the personal allowance and the higher rate thresholds are uh, being frozen for the next few years. That was a policy that Rishi Sunak announced earlier uh, in the year. But there are also thresholds in the system that are always fixed in cash terms like the £150,000 threshold at which you start paying the additional 45p rates. So I suppose getting through all of that, the short answer really is that the windfall for the Chancellor is so large because the, is because the ways in which the economic forecast increased are really good for tax revenues, um, which is the reason why the tax burden is reaching such high levels. But that also explains why the outlook for 
household incomes is not so rosy. Okay, so so strong growth, particularly including coming from high inflation, means more money for the Chancellor and uh, less money in some ways for, for the rest of us. And broadly, what did Rishi Sunak choose to do with that extra money? In terms of what the Chancellor did, I think it's important to distinguish between the near term, so the next couple of years, um, which are before his fiscal rules take effect, and then the later years in the forecast. So in the first two years, 2022-23 and 23-24, Actually, he's spent a fair chunk of that windfall, in particular to increase the amount of money available to public services in those years. Um, and the old plans implied very tight settlements in those years previously. In later years, he did increase the amount of money going to departments, um, but by less. Um, once you account for the money we already knew was going into health and social care. But this was also offset a little bit uh, by his quite big saving from the already announced um, cancelling of the pensions triple lock, meaning that um, it's now a double lock and pensions will increase by the largest of inflation and 2.5% rather than inflation earnings and 2.5%. So overall, in those later years, actually on net, he's only spending about five or six billion of a more than 30 billion pounds windfall. So really the choice he made there was to to save it, give himself headroom against his new fiscal rules. And that means that if the forecasts go in the wrong direction in future, he should still be on track to meet those fiscal rules. Or you could see it perhaps as the Chancellor hoping that the forecasts will stay the same or even get better. And then he has a pretty healthy war chest that he could use for a pre-election tax rise, a tax cut rather. Okay. And I mean, you're referring there to his new fiscal rules. So those are that uh, he wants tax revenues to cover day-to-day public spending. He's willing to borrow for investment, but he does want to have public sector net debt falling as a share of uh, GDP in future. Um, Jill, what did you make of the big choices that Rishi Sunak made this week? I've heard people referring to him more as Gordon Brown than George Osborne. How do you think he compares to previous chancellors? I think the really interesting thing is less the choices he made this week, though I think the fact that he announced spending increases for all government departments is rather surprising. I think we had discounted the fact that there would be increases to meet some of the backlog in the big, very profoundly affected public services departments um, and a long-term settlement for health and social care as pre-announced. But I think the really interesting thing, uh, the juxtaposition of the choices this week with the choices that were made in early September. And it's really interesting, I think, to think through if the Chancellor and the Prime Minister have been discussing the need to raise national insurance contributions and to disapply the triple lock against the background of this much improved revenue forecast from the OBR, would it have been as politically possible to introduce some really major spending cuts and uh, and tax rises or would the chancellor actually been uh, been forced to have less to play with because he wouldn't have been able to sustain making those choices against the revised fiscal backdrop because what was really really interesting was th- the Chancellor was able to go on um, Wednesday to Parliament and announce a lot of extra money 
but didn't actually have to announce the very big rises um, because he got those out of the way in what wasn't billed as a fiscal event at all, but was actually a really major fiscal event uh, when he announced the health and social care changes and that pension change. Uh, and that enabled him to do a very different sort of budget to the one that it really was because those measures were coming in, but he didn't have to major on those at all. Um, that, that's a really interesting point. I mean, do you think this was incredibly clever politics or just lucky timing? for Rishi Sunak? I don't know, because I don't know whether he had wind of the fact that he was going to get quite this scale of windfall when those announcements were made. And um, I don't know if he knew that, whether the Treasury had shared that with Number 10, certainly in Number 10. The thinking always was it was quite hard to get uh, information out of the Treasury, but the Prime Minister had thought he had tackled that by creating this joint advisor unit between Number 10 and Number 11 to improve the flow and coordination of policy between the two departments. Uh, I think he probably didn't expect anything quite on this scale, but I do think it makes those decisions very interesting. I mean, I think the my personal view is that the pensions decision stands on its own merits. It would have been mm. very, very odd to have a massive upsurge in um, in pensions this year when pensions actually found their incomes protected. Last year were not affected anything like workers by the pandemic. Uh, so I think it was a sensible one. Quite whether they'd have uh, found it so easy to defend the scale of the uh, hit on incomes. What's been interesting, of course, is that the Chancellor hasn't escaped the effects of that, because although he didn't point to the effect on household disposable incomes on day one, the overnight number crunching has brought that out. And a lot of the subsequent discussion of the budget for the Chancellor has not been individual measures falling over, but has been this judgment that this is quite bad news for real disposable incomes long term uh, I think one of the papers today is talking about return of the squeeze middle, that mm. this is not a budget, and notwithstanding the language about optimism, that is saying people can look forward to uh, healthy rises in uh, how much they can spend going forward through the period. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it's always interesting to see what unravels on day two after the budget. Chris, what stood out for you? Um, I mean, Top of the list as 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 you know um, somebody in the what I would call the, the the stakeholder community in that sense is is a very welcome lack of policy surprises, which is potentially itself quite surprising given um, um, you know the the uh, majority government and 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 what's going on in the world. Um, but I, I have to give praise for that. That's that's a welcome uh, um, um, move. That I, I I'm happy to see. Um, uh, we used to I think normally dread you know, policy surprises in the budget um um which that you know anything that goes into the budget comes under budget secrecy and and, and then avoids consultation and stakeholder engagement uh, other than in implementation of the details so that so that's really welcome so in, in some senses i view it as a a, a sort of um, old style classic workman like budget um it is, of course, absolutely great to have the budget connected to a spending review and a welcome return to get a, a spending review. And it's, But I am slightly surprised that not more was made of the connection between the budget and the spending review. It, it, it's one thing to, uh, to, 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 to have the money raised and spend the money, 
but I was really surprised that not more was done on the priority outcomes and metrics uh, paper that was alongside it, because that seems to be the tool to ensure the money has outcomes. Um, and seeing how that develops as a governance tool, data-driven government, how we, you know, I was expecting much more on that, to be honest, in terms of trajectories, what the government is trying to achieve when with some of these sums of monies. On the other hand, as I say, to some extent, that's delegating it back to departments, but really interested. That's that's one to watch in terms of, yeah, actually, can they secure the outcomes which is essential, I think, to, to you know, um, generally for all governments, but particularly in the current times, to ensure that, that people feel the funds being raised and being announced are actually meeting their objectives. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting point. And we will come back to that in a minute when we talk a bit more about the spending review. Um, Jill, coming back to you, the, the biggest cheers during the speech from the Conservative benches seemed to be when the Chancellor mentioned Brexit. Um but the Tony Blair Institute, uh, for example, has estimated since uh, Wednesday that the Exchequer has actually lost £30 billion a year in tax revenues as a result of Brexit. What do you make of this debate? Was there much evidence of Brexit dividends in this budget? There was a little bit of evidence of Brexit dividends in this budget. Um, there was you know, uh, some measures that the Chancellor could do um, that he would have found much more difficult to do while the UK was a member of the EU wouldn't have been able to do. So differentiating between domestic flights and flights you know, into the EU would not have been an uh, possible as an EU member state. So he was able to do his uh, domestic relief for air passenger duty, whether that was actually the right thing to do um, in the run up to the COP is a different issue. But that certainly was something he was able to do because the UK can now set that without having to have non-discrimination against other EU member states. He was able to uh, have a more sensible structure for alcohol tax. Um, it's difficult. That may just apply to Great Britain because Northern Ireland is still subject to some of the EU alcohol tax directives, uh, which will be a bit of a difficulty with the, uh, the border in the RSC becoming just that little bit deeper. And he could make a rather symbolic reform to tonnage tax, which seemingly mainly seems to involve flags. But of course, what a lot of people are focusing on, although it's not actually new, is the uh, Office of Budget Responsibility focusing on the long-term scarring effect, if you like, of Brexit on the British economy. There's been a lot of discussion about the scarring from COVID, but the OBR can reconfirmed its view that the long-run effect of Brexit would make the UK economy 4% lower, uh, 4% smaller than it otherwise would have been. And that's led you know, people like the Tony Blair Institute to say, well, actually, if you take that into account, uh, Brexit isn't helping the public finance or giving the Chancellor more room to manoeuvre. It's actually reducing his room to manoeuvre. And the reason that the Chancellor's having to put up taxes uh, is because of Brexit. So that's obviously an argument that uh, that will, like all Brexit arguments, run and run. What was quite interesting was that I think one of the things that Brexit definitely does do is open up more discussions about the structure of VAT and VAT rates. We saw pressure from Labour to use that newfound Brexit freedom to uh, reintroduce a zero rate on domestic fuel and power, a zero rate that 
uh, was abolished by Norman Lamont. And while we were EU members, we weren't allowed ever to go back to that zero rate. The Chancellor didn't take that. And I think one of the things that I take a bit of heart from is that the Chancellor actually didn't announce lots of fiddly interest group driven changes to the VAT rate. Because frankly speaking, as an ex-Treasury official, that's your nightmare, that your easy pat response, oh, well, that sounds like a very good idea. And the Chancellor would, of course, want to support you, but the EU won't let him do it, is no longer available. So I think it's quite a relief that we didn't get lots of silly VAT changes, which uh, we are now a bit more vulnerable to than we were before. Yes, I think I agree. It's quite interesting in this budget that actually we saw some quite good and promising behaviour from the Chancellor in tax policy making, kind of along along the lines of things that IFG has talked about in the past. So exactly as you say, they they didn't come under pressure. Well, they, they've resisted the pressure to introduce new lower rates of VAT, which would have complicated the system and provided the wrong incentives. And also the alcohol duty change was actually rationalising the system uh, in a way that makes a lot of sense. Um, but perhaps would, we wouldn't normally think of being a massive vote winner. But it was quite actually quite heartening to see, from my perspective, um, the Chancellor doing that sort of thing, um, even if it was badged as a Brexit dividend. Um, but I mean, you're right, um, Jill, with the, the partly because of uh, these uh, drag of Brexit, despite all of Rishi Sunak's talk of a, a new age of optimism, the economic forecasts beyond the next year or so actually looked rather gloomy. Um, growth expected to stabilise around 1.5% a year, which is sluggish by historical standards. And wage growth predicted to barely keep pace with inflation for the next few years. And this, as you said, Jill, is the kind of the thing that's been unravelling uh, over the past few days as the dust settles on the budget. But if the government really wants to have money to spend on its priorities, like levelling up, particularly if the Chancellor really doesn't, as he say, want uh, to raise taxes, in fact, wants to cut them, um, the way to, only way to square the circle really is to hope that economic growth turns out rather more buoyant than the forecasts currently suggest. Chris, for you, I mean, there were measures in the budget aimed at bolstering productivity growth, things like changes to R&D tax credits and skills training. What did you make of all of that? Does it does it look transformative? Um, I, I, I think it's a welcome start. Um, let's put it that way. I mean, the R&D tax credit taking in cloud and data is 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 definitely a great thing, but it's it's really the start of updating the tax system to incentivize businesses to be more productive. I mean, in other parts, the help to grow system and other things, we've already seen that the government has recognized that digital services are, are, a, are you know, digital services and skills basically are your tools for short-term productivity growth notwithstanding infrastructure investment and connectivity is, is also vital, but they tend to be longer-term projects. Um, but you've still got the situation that you know, first-year allowances for capital capital investment will help you buy a server. Well, that you know, companies don't really work that way in the cloud era. So there, there's been a lot of move from CapEx to OpEx in, in the IT world, which is one of those big areas driving the the, the, the productivity in the private sector. Um, um, it's great. It's recognized. I think it's underplayed. And I think the same is probably true with, with, with skills. Um, just by the way, I should say the, the, the level is about 20% of companies in the UK are regarded as digitally intensive. 
and and that tends to correlate to to, to the, the the chunk that is highly productive in terms of you know if you look at what's happening in the UK, we're great at e-commerce, great at business to consumer. Um, we tend to be far, far lower on the on the, on the league tables in terms of, of of internal business use of technology. We're we're bottom quadrant in 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 that on the EU league tables in terms of internal use of, of IT in business. Um, and, and there is this this big gap to get over of of, of the unengaged um, and. Part of that is an understanding that our attitude to to protecting business through the last financial crises has really changed. We are protecting companies and protecting employees much more so than in, than in historic uh, uh, UK policy. Not that that's a bad thing at all. It's just it has to then be reflected in in a change in, in what we might term industrial policy. I think skills is another one. Um, great focus on skills. Lovely to see it. But the balance of looking at people entering the job market, um, um, everything from you know, uh, uh, um, the, the boot camps through to more PhDs, absolutely great. But I think it underplays the changes and need to deal with the people in work, the in workforce, uh, because when you combine what's going to happen on digital transformation, the fourth industrial revolution, net zero on the policy side, the the impact on everybody's working life is is yeah we've as we've seen through the pandemic. There's so much just ready and waiting to happen, um, e- even if you're relatively um, um, restrained on your predictions for the impact of technology in the future. It's still vast. Um, so you know, and and it's you know, some of the estimates for digital jobs would be almost the entire output from higher education in that period. So I I, I think the the again. Great start. Really want to see more on on actually how do we help companies themselves handle the digital transformation and how do they support their staff through that? But it's not just the digital transformation. It's also the effect on the construction industry, the non-digital parts as they move towards net zero, transport sectors, uh, and other elements. So there's a, there's a lot to unpick there. But I but you know, great to see the recognition. Starting small and following the data would be great but as i said right at the beginning interesting in that the, the the outcomes and metrics have have been underplayed so far on that thanks i, mean, I think it's really interesting point you make there about we it's easy to think of productivity boosting as being about pushing the frontiers of new technologies but actually the really important point that actually is also about all businesses in the economy adopting and making the most of pretty bog standard technologies that have been around for a while but haven't um, permeated as far as they they could have done. Yeah, um, if I may, just yeah, sorry, briefly. You are absolutely right on that, and some people call it the digital foundation. And one of the key messages that was recognised in the AI policy, but is here, is that's the foundation for the next generation of productivity tools. That's why it's so important. Brilliant. Um, so we've actually we've not had a shortage of budgets in the past 18 months, but we have been really bereft of multi-year spending reviews. So I'd like to turn our attention now more squarely to what we heard from this first multi-year spending review um, since 2015. Uh, Tom, starting with you, um, the Treasury had set out back in September the total amount of money that it planned to allocate in this spending review. But in the end, uh, it allocated much more, as we've already kind of touched on. Can you briefly run us through how the final numbers compared to what we were expecting. 
So before the spending review yesterday, we expected that overall uh, spending on departments would increase about 8% over the three years of the spending review. Um, for the health service, we already knew what they were going to get. There's going to be a big increase in the first year um, and then to deal with backlogs, and then it was pretty steady after that. But that meant for other departments, we're actually expecting a cut next year um, before increases in the final year of the forecast, which risked um, prolonging the impact of COVID on these services because they wouldn't have the extra money next year or the year after to deal with backlogs. And what we saw from the Chancellor yesterday was some more money in the medium term. So the increase over the period as a whole is now expected to be about 10% rather than 8%. But almost all of that extra money was coming in in the short term. So now we're actually expecting next year the spending to increase by about 10% on departments in real terms and then to be pretty flat after that. So a lot more money overall and a completely different time profile with much more money coming earlier. Brilliant. Um, Graham, what was notable for you in this spending review? What what did we learn about the government's priorities from the way they allocated the money? Uh, so as Tom said, I think the really notable thing actually is the timing and the front loading. Um, I think two other notable things are really that some of the departments and services that have been cut quite deeply and repeatedly over kind of past fee spending reviews are finally starting to see real terms increases. So it's notable that um, uh, DHSC aside, which normally does quite well outside of spending reviews, the Ministry of Justice, um, responsible for prisons, courts, uh, amongst other things, saw a 4.1% increase each year over the rest of the spending review. Even local authority spending power is going to rise in by 3% each year, although it is worth saying that some of that money is earmarked to pay for social care reform. And once you remove that, it's only going to grow by about 2% a year. And some of that is going to come from council tax increases. So I think the two notable things are that some departments who haven't done as well did do quite well in this spending review. And even local authority spending power is going to go up, although that may not be as generous as always, as the headline figures suggest. You recently published our performance tracker, our annual stock take that we do in partnership with SIPFA for the performance of public services. To what extent has the spending review addressed the pressures that you highlighted there? So the big pressure we identified in performance tracker was was the backlogs facing different services. I think in general, the answer is yes. So the government has ended spending cuts for most public services, even if it hasn't fully reversed the uh, reductions over the last 10 years. Most services now have enough money to maintain standards and address backlogs. And a big question kind of facing public services is now, are there actually the people and kind of equipment, specialist resources in place to address them? So to take one example, the the government's given the NHS 8 billion over the rest of the spending review to tackle the elective backlog, the number, like the large number of people now waiting for care that's increased over this period. And kind of that that might be roughly enough. So various estimates of the one-off cost of tackling the backlog can go from about 6.5 billion up to about 15. So the amount of money sounds roughly right, but eliminating the backlog is going to require about 800,000 additional operations a year. And quite frankly, the, the really difficult thing now is going to be finding quite simply enough kind of doctors, nurses and other hospital staff to do that. Among the public services that we cover, I think there's really only two notable shortfalls, the first of which is education, which seems to have been the loser, relatively speaking, um, of this spending review. So there's about five billion going in for education catch up, which, given the potentially quite big impact on people's 
lifelong earnings and productivity doesn't seem like it will be enough. And it's it's certainly below what we, the Education Policy Institute and the government's former education recoveries are, Kevin Collins, have, have all called for. Uh, and secondly, on that local authority settlement, once you take out the money earmarked for social care reform, actually, it's not rising especially quickly. And we project that local authority spending on adult social care would have to rise quicker than local authority spending power is going to increase. So we're probably going to continue to see a trend over the rest of this parliament of social care eating up a larger part of local government revenues. Thank you. Chris, coming to you then, even with this extra money, it's clear from what Graham's saying that it's going to be difficult for departments and public services to deliver everything the government wants and the public expect. And there was an explicit requirement in the spending review document for all departments to find 5% efficiency savings to be ploughed back into priority areas. Is it feasible for the public sector to do things more efficiently? And was there really, was there much detail in the documents about how that's actually going to be made possible? Well, I, I think let me unpick that slightly, if I, I may. Um, if you look at, basically, it comes down to public sector productivity in those terms. Mm. Um, public sector productivity has basically been flat um, um, since since records began, around 0.2%. Um, it, it's, um, it actually went up 4 or 5% um, after the 2011 period, mostly correlating to budget restrictions rather than investment. Um, so um, that that puts you one side. On the other side, at the same time, private sector productivity, you know, basically since the 50s, has been on a rising, tra- rising path, a dramatically and incredibly rising path, um, uh, but flatlined in 2008, broadly speaking. But if you look at the history of the two data sets, the chances are there is a, a massive gap between private sector productivity and public sector productivity. Not that any sensible person would expect them to be anywhere close, because it is much, much harder to do in public sector services, quite rightly so, as, as they have an obligation to help everyone, and they can't select their own customers. Um, but nonetheless, that suggests that the, the opportunity is there. I think then you've got to say is absolutely finding bankable in the sense of moving resources from centre to the front line, as they said was the purpose, looks an incredibly uh, challenge by historical operations. And that likely means yeah, then they're going to have to ensure that their, their, their fiscal management, uh, operational management tracks outcomes that they ensure that the, the you know, cost codes relate to spending in the right way, that it's reliant to operations, that they actually know which spending relates to which of their priority outcomes and how effective each piece of spending is as a lever. So so absolutely is it possible, uh, but we're sure we'll come on to it a minute in, in, in digital strategy. That seems to be a lot of the missing link. Um, um, interestingly, some of the departments that that if anything are more advanced, actually had more scrutiny on it in the budget. HMRC is is you know, one of the world's uh, most advanced uh, uh, d- digital tax authorities, and actually got quite a lot of detail in the budget about about that. Others not so much. Um, but I, I think that's really um, that that's th- this key. So is is it there? Almost certainly. Actually, do you have the operational and managerial um, uh, um, commitment and the corresponding tools to do it? 
is still an open question of, of, of primarily we call it digital strategy probably wrong we really mean digital strategy combined with managerial strategy okay so what more would you like to see on on that i mean do you think there's a sort of gap in government's ambition in making the most of digital technologies um I mean, we, we tend to have this this catchphrase, data-driven government, and but I think it's kind of the essential thing when you're talking about this. And as I said, actually, going back to those priority outcome measures, you're normally managing a trajectory. Uh, the data has a big timeliness issue. Uh, if you can't capture the data you want to capture, can you carry? Can you capture proxies for it? Otherwise, you're into again the the, the old catchphrase of of driving by looking in the rearview mirror. You know, if you're focusing on last year's gdp figures it doesn't tell you much about what's ha- happening in the two two and there this breaks into two areas for government one is data on its own operational and transactional activities but two what those things are doing in the outside world um so um much of that is 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 um data that is is always lag data so you've got to look for proxies you've got to understand the impact of what you're doing on the trajectory of of the um, target you're looking at um so that lots of complexity um it can be done people are working on this there are you know great interests in digital dashboards but they're only the top of the iceberg it's really connecting it to everything else and understanding what's going on in the machine um the you know, the separation uh, in government and the government silos don't help. And I, I, I think, you know, again, probably maybe spend a little more time on it on digital strategy. There was digital everywhere. I mean, the, the, the top level um, um, elements was um, 2.6 billion over, over the SR21 period for digital activity. But actually, each element was spread out into the departmental silos. Not a wrong thing to do, as I said. Maybe the the budget and the spending review is not the place for digital strategy, but it does mean that digital strategy is is a big work item to deliver on the ambitions of this spending review. Thanks, Graham. Um, as Chris was sort of alluding to there, there have been quite a few changes to ways of managing spending within government in recent years, particularly with more of a focus on outcomes and making sure that spending is achieving what was uh, the outcomes that were desired. What do you make of all of this? Is this a big change in the way that departments manage their money? So I think on balance, it's probably a good thing. So alongside the spending review, we have the spending review priority outcomes and metrics. And in general, it's a good thing that government set out some measures to evaluate itself and how well its spending is doing. Um, In a sense, it actually continues perhaps a wider budget trend of reversing some of the things that George Osborne and David Cameron did. So it seems to me quite reminiscent of some previous public service agreements, which were kind of Blair era government innovations to try to measure spending and performance together. I think on the metrics themselves, my concern probably would be there's quite a lot of them. Not everything can be a priority, and there's quite a lot of stuff listed in the document. And a lot of the specific things they are outlining to measure are really inputs rather than outcomes. So looking at the Department of Health and Social Care's metrics, for example, the government claims to want to measure its success against the number of hospitals under construction and the number of doctors in general practice both of which may or may not be good things, but are clearly kind of not outcomes in a sense that will affect people's lives directly. Um, and it's also worth saying, it kind of, the document goes on to say that the number 10 delivery unit 
uh, was going to track performance and dive deeply into where things aren't going as well to try and work out what the government could do differently. Now, that model worked or at least helped in the 2000s because of the kind of close personal patronage and involvement of Tony Blair himself. And I think, obviously, in order to replicate that and get some of the benefits, Boris Johnson will have to be quite, you know, paying quite close attention and heavily involved as well. And I'm not totally convinced that kind of from what we know about kind of Johnson's governance style so far, that really seems viable. So that, those would be my concerns about the metrics that uh, have been published. Thanks very much, Graham. In the final few minutes that we have left, I'd like to just talk about the, the dog that I guess didn't bark in this budget. With the budget timed for just before the UK hosts other world leaders for a major climate change summit, COP26, uh, many people, in, including me, I think, had predicted that the government would use this opportunity to perhaps announce some substantive new commitments on net zero to sort of put a flag in the ground uh, before trying to convince others to go further. But in the end, we got only one mention of uh, net zero in the budget speech, and the balance of new measures arguably went in the wrong direction. Jill, you, you've been working a lot on net zero. Were you surprised to see so little of it in the budget? Well, I think it rather confirmed the impression that this may be very high up the prime minister's agenda, but it's not very high up the chancellor's agenda. It's sort of a bit more of a sort of compliance activity as far as the chancellor is concerned. So the spending review reconfirmed the numbers that had appeared in the net zero strategy published the week before. But on the tax side, if you were looking for a chancellor that was enthusiastically embracing the challenge of how do you make a tax system that's appropriate and supports the transformation to a net zero economy, something that we thought he might take the opportunity to do and indeed publish some ideas for that uh, a week ago, uh, the Chancellor definitely didn't step up to the plate. And as you said, Gemma, the sort of most eye-catching measures were the utterly predictable freeze on fuel duty, um, probably unrealistic to think that a chancellor who didn't raise fuel duty when petrol was at an all-time low price or a localised low in March 2020 would raise it when it's reached all-time highs, as that wasn't too much of a surprise. His reformulation of air passenger duty, yes, he hit long-haul flights. That's probably good for climate change, but the uh, estimate is that he will generate 410,000 new flights within the UK and only reduce international flights by 23,000. So uh, that doesn't look like great signalling on climate, uh, though the IFS did point out, but it took the IFS to point it out the next day that domestic emissions are within the overall domestic emissions trading scheme cap. And therefore, the first round effect of that will not be to put up UK emissions, be to raise carbon price generally uh, and mean you pay for it through slightly higher electricity prices, something mm -hmm. Chancellor chose not to emphasise. Um, he did have one sort of measure that people had been calling for to help the businesses invest in uh, green technologies to improve their buildings, which was uh, responding to a call from the CBI to reform business rates so that there wasn't a penalty that if you invested in upgrading uh, for example, uh, modernising air conditioning or putting in LED lighting, your building was deemed to have a higher rateable value and you, you'd immediately be hit by a higher rates bill. So it was a bit lurking around in there. But was this a budget for net zero? No. And you could tell from the way the Chancellor skipped over that, that he was determined it's going to be remembered for many other things, but not that. 
And I mean, do you have any sense of whether this will have done any harm to the UK's negotiating stance with other countries? I think there will be a few people uh, pointing out that this is a missed opportunity or some of the messages were very, very strange uh, in the run-up to that. But I'm not sure how much the people coming to the COP were pouring over the detail of a UK budget. I think, you know, it's dominated by the fact that the government did publish its big net zero strategy the week before, and that did give it quite a good launch pad into the COP. But there's still some areas where it doesn't go. So earlier this week, we also saw the Climate Change Committee's assessment of that, which noted that the uh, uh, government is still very reluctant to go anywhere near anything that smacks of demand management or trying to disincentivize uh, people from doing things that are bad for the climate. But I think the big thing was the net zero strategy. The budget was a missed opportunity to add momentum, but I don't think will have derailed the COP. Fantastic. Thanks, Jill. Well, that will clearly be the next thing I assume dominating the news next week. Um, unfortunately, we have now run out of time. So that is it for this edition of Inside Briefing Extra. Really huge thanks to Jill Rutter, Graham Atkins and Tom Pope. And an extra special thanks to Chris Francis and SAP for taking the time to take part in and sponsoring this edition of Inside Briefing. If you enjoyed this podcast, then do check out our sister podcast channel, IFG Live. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave us a review. Do also check out all our analysis of the budget and spending review, which is on our website at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk.